You're listening to Women Making Waves. Sharon Williams went on a writing course which she really enjoyed. What she didn't expect was that one of her stories will be turned into a film. She speaks with Linda Ness. I think that women in particular, they kind of store up all these stories. He's busy trying to live up to his, his wife's memory, really. And he's scraping out the last of the jam of his dead wife. And apricots was a wonderful kind of symbol for me because not only do I love apricots, but they are the fruit of Damascus. And he actually took two scripts from that class, not just mine, and submitted them as, as potential scripts to this director, and the director in the end chose mine. And you do kind of watch bits of it through your fingers, thinking, oh my goodness, how is this going to go down? <laughs> I'm here with Sharon Williams, who's a writer of a short film called The Apricot Tree. The film was shown at The View in Piccadilly as part of the Raindance Film Festival in October. But this is no ordinary story. Now, how did this happen? Because you didn't really set out to write a film script, did you? I certainly didn't. It was part of a course that I was doing at Maddingley Institute of Continuing Education, so I started there on their evening class doing the cert course and the third term was focused on writing for performance and the script is my assignment for that term. Are you wanting to do writing? Is it something that you're really into? Well, no, it's a complete accident. I'm, I'm in my 50s and I had a 25-year career in fintech in the city and I started looking at the beginning of 2016 to do something a little bit different and I took on a distance learning course with the Writers' Centre in Norwich and the UEA, and that lasted three months, and it was a lot of fun, and I found it really interesting, and also I thought I was quite good at it. It was something new, and I, and I thought I was doing quite well. And after that, I was looking around to do a, another course, and I investigated doing a master's course, even at that point. Now, I haven't got an undergraduate degree, so I was being a bit cheeky when I approached <laughs> Cambridge University, but they, they still very kindly met me at Maddingley, and I met with Midge Gillis, who is the director there. I should say the director of creative writing before I get my wrist slapped by her. <laughs> she encouraged me not only to apply for the Masters for the following year, but also to look at their courses at a lower level, at an undergraduate level. And they do too. They do a cert course and a diploma course. And I enrolled in the um, certificate course. You know... It's amazing the amount of people who, in their 50s, come to a point for whatever reason where you just change stream. And writing seems to be something that people are really interested in doing, especially women. So it's a thing that a lot of people do. Yeah, I and I think that, that so, well, certainly my experience and the experience of a lot of my colleagues is that you devote quite a lot of your working life to your children if you have them, your family responsibilities and earning a, a living to keep them. Yeah. So you push to one side some of your other ambitions, whether you, you do it consciously or not. And that doesn't mean that you don't enjoy being a parent or that you don't enjoy your work. You do. But when the pressures change, the types of pressures you have in those two roles, whether it's because you're leaving or the, the, the children are a little older, you suddenly have this space to think about, well, what do I like mm -hmm. doing now? What do I want to do? And I think that women in particular, they kind of store up all these stories. 
they have to work with their, their bringing up their children in a, in a diplomatic way quite often. They have to work within the, the office environment in a diplomatic way. Quite often, they're not repressing themselves, but these stories are building up, these experiences are building up, and they, they coalesce into something they want to say. And it might just be kind of a therapy or writing for, for friendship, but quite often there's, there's kind of wisdom and there's things to say in those stories that hasn't had an outlet before. The story itself that was made into the film, The Apricot Tree, how did that come about? So it came from different uh, sources. First of all, I had worked for the British Refugee Council many years ago. So I think that gave me a particular perspective when the refugee crisis arose. And I had a different uh, sympathy and felt that we could, it could have been us you know in, mm-hmm. in many ways those mm-hmm. people are just like us yes. those people in those terrible circumstances um so i had i suppose that that bias to begin with my mother had had a fall and was living with us at the time for her recovery for her recuperation and i think that that also highlighted the kind of loneliness people get into not just um, myself or my mother but the fact that people can very easily get isolated and the film is about Alf who is an elderly man who's been widowed and his isolation and how he has that isolation that loneliness challenged by discovering someone sleeping in his garden shed and that is a refugee and that's a Syrian refugee and, and how does he react to that? Is he a person who's sympathetic to refugees or not He's very much not sympathetic mm-hmm. to refugees. And I think he has an attitude which is not uncommon, which is, is based upon people's own life experience. Yeah. They, they feel that maybe the wool's being pulled over their eyes about who the refugees are, and they're suspicious. Mm. And they've already got enough to deal with in their own lives without having to open up you know, their sympathies to other people. And that's certainly the case with Alf. And he's busy trying to live up to his his wife's memory, really, to keep an apricot tree that she had planted alive because he had promised that he would produce apricots for jam. She was a big jam maker. And he's scraping out the last of the jam of his, uh, his dead wife and eking it out and trying to decide what to do about this um, failing tree in the garden when he comes across Sammy sleeping in his garden shed. And apricots was a wonderful kind of symbol for me because not only do I love apricots, but they are the fruit of Damascus. And, of course, they're grown there in people's gardens in the same way we might grow apples here. And that's the experience that Sammy brings. Sammy tries also to keep the tree alive because he's recognised it as being the tree that he saw in his mother's garden. And therefore an empathy grows presumably between the two. So despite coming from very different perspectives, the two kind of find some common ground and and Alf has a moment of realisation that Sammy is just a guy. You know, just an ordinary man in difficult circumstances. So his sympathies change. And also he kind of moves on from his grief for his wife by kind of making a memorial out of this tree. So the way that Sammy shows him to protect the tree against the spring frost is to light candles underneath the tree and to wrap the branches in silk and cotton. And that's something he had learnt from his mother in Damascus. And Alf, at the end of the film, does this. And you see the tree, the, the base of the tree, illuminated by these hundreds of candles. And Alf takes the scarf that had belonged to his late wife and wraps it around the branches of the tree. And that's his memorial. To oh, that's him. beautifully symbolic, isn't it? Yeah, and, it's, and this is what you know people do to keep the trees warm, and also vines as well. And I'd, and I'd been reminded of this story, which I'd heard from a Syrian friend many years ago, by um, a documentary on 
vineyards in France where they also put lanterns underneath the vines if it's an, a, a particularly cold frost. So you wrote the story. Beautiful story. I, I love you. that story. Thank you. So what next? What happened? How did well, that, that get was the most to a film? bizarre thing because I'm doing this evening class and this is my third term. At the end of each term, we all have a, an assignment to put in. And unusually for this particular term, we didn't do pieces of work every week and then go away and write a brand new assignment. We worked on the script throughout the term and workshopped it with each other. So I have to pay tribute to my fellow classmates that kind of helped pull it into shape here. And the most amazing tutor, Rick Harvey, who's a screenwriter himself, that came along to, to teach us. And Rick has a very structured way to present what elements you need in a script to make it work. So he kind of gently took us through what you needed to do, whatever your story, in order to make it work as a film. Yes, and very different kind of very writing. Very different. Yeah, and dialogue. In particular, well, not actually just dialogues. That was an interesting thing. So I had always been nervous about writing dialogue before mm. starting these courses. It turned out to be something that I could do more easily than other things. But... Rick's point was, if it's a film, you're telling the story visually. So, in fact, you want to pull back on the dialogue and make every word count, if you can, and put in the visuals to tell the story. So you could almost turn the sound down and watch the visuals and understand still what was going on. And that was a fantastic piece of advice. And I'd never thought like that about no. uh, film writing. And it did change the way I approached both this story and, and other scripts to tell the story in pictures. So after I'd submitted the assignment and it went away and got marked and, and came back, Rick had made some very positive comments about it. And a few months later, when I'm actually on the master's course now at Cambridge for creative writing, he got in touch and said, would I be open to that script being put forward to a director? And he said, this award-winning director. So I thought, well, fantastic. But I had no expectation that this was, script was actually going to be made into a film. Mm. I hadn't written it particularly thinking it would ever be made because I'm not the kind of person that writes film scripts. <laughs> I'm not doing the hustle. You are amongst, now. <laughs> <laughs> amongst all the screenwriters, I'm not moving in those circles. Mm. But, but Rick, um, who had these contacts, particularly through Raindance, um, the school Raindance, had come across a director that was looking for a, a short strip. And he actually took two scripts from that class, not just mine, and submitted them as, as potential scripts to this director. And the director, in the end, chose mine. So it could have been somebody else in the class as well. So that was something that Rick Harvey had made happen. And did you feel at that point a kind of loss of control of the story? Because you're, you're really having to hand that over to someone else and it's then their interpretation of the story. That's a really interesting question, but I think that as part of the, the certificate course, one thing that we became aware of as we were writing the film scripts, or in some cases plays, is the nature of collaboration and how a film or a play or a radio play is so much a collaboration of different people coming together with their different expertise and making a product. So I was very aware that this was not going to be just my film as I had envisaged it. Mm. It was going to be the sum of lots of people's experiences and not just the director, but the actors, the set designer and so on. And that it would be a different story to the original one in some subtle ways. And that's what happened. So the script that I wrote was modified. I did a couple of rewrites for the director and the director developed it further to make it into something that he could shoot. 
And some of that is due to my lack of experience in writing scripts. So I had written this script thinking, I'm writing this cheap. Two actors, no special effects, one house, a house and a garden. You know, it's it's going to be cheap to easy, make. Easy, easy to easy. do. Yeah. No way was this. <laughs> so whilst it didn't have, you know, great panoramic shots or, or huge demands like that, it did expect a cold, snappy spring. So it expected frost on the ground. That was essential to the plot. And it was a warm, wet spring. So the set designer had a, an enormous challenge to make this garden look frosty. When you don't have big budgets and a snow machine, I suppose that's tricky. It, really tricky. It was shot in the Netherlands because it was cheaper to shoot it in the Netherlands than in London. So we had to make the house look English because the, the script is set in South East London. And Dutch houses are very different. In, and they're in different. Yeah. So you kind of have to make these changes. So you think you're writing cheap, but you're not. You're right. You, it turns out that it's, nothing's as cheap as you think. <laughs> but we were spectacularly lucky with the actors. And in, in particular, Yahya Hashem, who is the Syrian refugee, Sami, um, who indeed himself was a refugee from Damascus. And he was very enthusiastic about playing the part. He had an acting career in Damascus before he came to the Netherlands and so he brought a lot to the, the script itself so though you lose control and it's a different beast I was kind of prepared for that up front I knew it would be different yeah. and it still carries with it the sentiment of the original script and I think Gideon Van Eden who's the director really did a magnificent job with the story and did you have any input when the filming was going on were you there? No, I didn't go. I had input to the set and the selection of the actors. And Giddy and I worked largely via Skype. And he sent me casting notes about the people that they were looking at and their showreels, which was um, useful and very interesting. Very and interesting insight into, was, into what goes on. And also the whole process of finding location, which was tricky. So I had lots of um, photographs and videos of different places they were looking at that were feasible for them to shoot the, the film. And we had some hilarious questions about, is that a Dutch fence or is that an English fence? Could that be an English fence or not? Yeah. Well, you so, get away with it. because. And I was saying well, the light switches are all different. You have to cover up all the light switches <laughs> because there's obviously a different socket. And the taps were wrong in one location and things like that, which you, you don't notice in everyday life, but they kind of jar if yes. the, um, the set's a little bit wrong. And the final and rather comical act was to send via very expensive courier things like carrier bags and... Um, yeah. And, and bits and pieces with which to dress the set that were inherently English somehow. So the film is made. Mm. Leaping right to the end, you're sitting in The View in London, yes. in Piccadilly, yes. watching a film. That's really surreal, isn't it? It was very surreal, yeah. And you did kind of watch bits of it through your fingers, thinking, oh my goodness, how is this going to go down? <laughs> I'd only seen the film, an earlier cut of the film, so there were some refinements made to the final cut on my computer. I hadn't seen it on the screen at all. And it was a surreal moment. And it was made better by the fact that my son and his girlfriend came with me, so I didn't feel completely out of place. But it was notable that that the for the whole showing, and it was part of the Rain Dance Film Festival, there was a lot of emphasis on young filmmakers. Mm. And I'm kind of thinking... I'm not seeing 55 again. <laughs> when I was listening to these uh, presentations, I think the good side was that the, the tutor that had been responsible for making this all happen, Rick Harvey, was present. And when there was a little Q&A at the end of the um, the showing, you know, he was aware that I wasn't the film student and I was indeed representing the director who was in the Netherlands still and talking about the film from that perspective. 
That sounds absolutely amazing. So if someone out there is uh, thinking that they might like to join one of these courses, I'm kind of assuming you would absolutely recommend it. I completely recommend doing something like the certificate course at um, Cambridge Institute of Continuing Education because the tutors are stellar and they're very encouraging. The first tutor I had, um, Sarah Burton, who's actually set up the original master's course at Cambridge, is just the most amazing tutor and quite inspiring. Congratulations on having the film shown at the festival. That must have been so, so exciting. Thank you very much for joining us, Sharon Williams. Thank you, Linda. I really enjoyed speaking to Sharon. I thought that was a really, really great conversation. Yeah, it was. And and what was really interesting at the beginning when she said, I'm storing up stories. Now, to store up stories, you've got to write about them. You've got to note them down. I think of stories, but I never write them down. Well, exactly. I think the point was that women in particular, we we tend to have a lot on our plates. But you do get all of these stories that happen. Mm. And you have all of this going on in the back of your head. And you're far too busy to do anything about it because you've got families to bring up and and often a full-time job job as well so I completely uh, get where she's coming from and I think it was really really good that in her 50s she decided that she would do something a little bit different and go off and go to college and and study writing which is clearly something that she fancied doing Mm. and and it's it's obviously going rather well for her (laughs) just a bit Uh, I think you asked that question do you feel like you lost control of the story Mm -hmm. well yes because I'm a bit of a control freak (laughs) Really, Linda? Have you not noticed? No, maybe just a little. <laughs> because of that, I, that, my first thought was, "Oh, you, you know, you've got this story that's yours, <laughs> and you've got to hand it over to other people. How would that feel?" And I have done a bit of this myself. And you're handing it over to a to a director, and I used to get quite resentful when they'd make little. Ch- and you know, he'd, he'd say, "Well, I think this line." would sound funnier turned round. And you'd think... Well, that's my story. Darn, he's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And she is actually saying it. She's really honest about it, isn't she, Sharon? She's saying that things evolve. They have to work in different scenarios. And this story was great, but they had to evolve it into a film. Mm. And the dialogue and the script, she had to learn that she had to let go of some of the script a bit and turn mm-hmm. it around. Good for her. And what an achievement and a great, great story. I think I think she'd be perfect for that, though, because I think she is somebody who wouldn't be precious about things. And she would just, you know, naturally work in, in, in a group scenario. I think it's you've got to be quite big. It takes it takes a big person to just go, yep, yeah, you're absolutely right. That that improves it and take the feedback and, and, and act on it. Oh, great. Yeah. No, I, I really, I really like her.